and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On October 15th, Poland will hold critical parliamentary elections. The campaign over the last several months has been fierce as an opposition bloc led by the centrist civic coalition has attempted to prevent the ruling right-wing coalition led by the Law and Justice Party from winning a third term in office. While the outcome of the race remains highly uncertain, with peace polling at 36% and the civic coalition at 30%, its potential implications are profound. Some have gone so far as to claim that the future of Polish democracy itself is on the line, pointing to the current government's track record of undermining the rule of law while in power. But the implications of the election are also likely to extend beyond Poland, affecting political dynamics within the European Union, as well as Poland's broader role on the international stage. To discuss the election and these high stakes, we're pleased to have Dan Kellerman and Michael Baranowski with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Well, Dan is the McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. His research interests include the politics and law of the European Union, comparative politics and law, and comparative public policy. And Michael is Managing Director at the German Marshall Fund, where he provides overall strategic direction and leadership for the organization's work in Poland, the Baltic states, and the Visegrad Four countries. All right, Michael, let's start with your, you. You're sitting in Warsaw at the moment. Um, before we jump into kind of the horse race and everything kind of surrounding the election, can you set the stage for us a little bit and talk about what this campaign season has been like in Poland? Well, this has been a pretty ugly campaign. Um, both sides see this as extremely high stakes. Uh, both sides of the political spectrum um, see this as the most important election since 1989 for uh, the governing law and justice. It's of course the opportunity to extend their govern governance by another term. Uh, no one has ever in Poland uh, since 89 won a third term. For the opposition, it's an opportunity to take back power, but perhaps more importantly, especially for the opposition, um, uh, the folks there see this as an existential election for Polish democracy. So the stakes are high. So, uh, so in fact, pretty much uh, this is the most intense, fiercely fought um, uh, and, and pretty ugly campaign with, frankly, I'm sure we get to it, but fr frankly, quite an unequal playing field um, where the state apparatus is uh, used uh, and where the mm, campaign finances are very unequal between the government uh, and law and justice on that side versus the opposition, especially the civic platform, the third way and the left. Dan, you're a longtime watcher of Polish politics as well. What has kind of jumped out to you? Uh, about this particular election? Well, Andrea, I must say I'm very gloomy. Uh, one doesn't want to you know, give up hope for the opposition forces that are fighting for democracy. But I, as far as I'm concerned, in light of the, the uneven playing field that Mikhail was referring to, uh, the die is likely already cast. I don't think this will be a fair election. Yes, it'll, it'll be a free election, but not fair you know, for several reasons. Um, 
including the uh, pervasive distortion of the state media that peace has put in place where it's just a propaganda arm of the government. Also, they have coupled the election with this kind of sham referendum posing four questions, all of which are basically misleading in different ways, and all of which are associated supposedly, the way peace is depicting it, with the platform of the opposition. And they want voters to say no to all of this. Anyway, so that's partly to, you know, sort of uh, guiding voters with this misleading info, but it also it's a way of circumventing any of the kind of campaign finance rules because the referendum isn't subject to the same rules and yet it's um, inextricably connected with the election, right? And so then financing is pouring into that as well. So, and and I could go on. There's other things, you know, state-owned enterprises uh, that are affiliated with peace, uh, putting money in the election. So it's not going to be fair. And I think it really is, as you said at the beginning, or as Michal said, you know, existential um, for what's left of Polish democracy. Well, we can come back to the issue of kind of the fairness of the election and then how the European Union and other outside actors should respond, right? Like mm-hmm. this, an election in the heart mm-hmm. of it, I'm going to come back to that. But maybe just another minute on setting the kind of stage. Michael, what have been the big campaign issues? What has Peace been talking about? What is the civic platform talking about? Are, like what, what are the issues? And well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, for, it's definitely not an issues campaign. Uh, what what the law and justice has been talking about is Donald Tusk, the leader of the opposition, and that he's a very, very bad person uh, connected to Germany and uh, Russia. That's, of course, the, their narrative. Um, and uh, it's really not about any real, you know, proposals. In fact, it's it's very telling that all of the parties, with the exception maybe of one, released their programs very, very late. And for for the opposition, it's really about the future of democracy. Um, uh, where where I want to just, even though I agreed with a lot what Dan said, where I wanted to 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 jump in perhaps is that because of the tightening of the of the race over the last couple of days, I I don't the the feeling here. Let's put it this way is that this is not a done deal that this is that this is certainly going to be a very close election and when we will look i'm sure later on at the possible scenarios uh just a straight win of uh of the government uh is not the only or even the most likely scenario really quick michael um so if it's not issues, and as Dan was just talking about, peace has really tried to kind of mobilize voters using this referendum, for example, but what have been some of the other approaches and tactics that peace has used? You also mentioned kind of the vilification of Tusk and um, just give us a little sense of like the, I don't sure. know, one of you, the vitriol of, and, and also that, the you know, the, 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 the rifts with Germany, for example, I mean, it well, seems like it's in all different directions, trying to stir up the base and get them to turn out at the polls. And so give us a little more color on what that's been like. Yeah. Um, well, as you said, Andrea, it, it is a little bit all over, um, it is very personal. The 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 campaign and the, is very personal, focused on the leader uh, of the opposition. Basically, the narrative is such that if opposition, especially Donald Tusk, wins, 
the bad times, uh, in many ways described in the referendum questions, will be back. So that, for example, that retirement age will be raised back, even though it's nothing that the opposition uh, said, that Poland will be subjugated to um, dominance from Germany, uh, even though, of course, that's not the platform on the foreign policy side. Uh, importantly, also that uh, that Poland will disarm or at least con discontinue military modernization. While even yesterday, the for a former defense minister uh, said that all the contracts will in fact continue. So these are issues that are voiced, but again, this is all through very very personal prism, and you know, in many ways, not so unlike in other countries in other democracies, including the United States, where where our politics sort of locked themselves in a bubble and became very uh, personal, but also in many ways uh, full of disinformation. Jim, I'm going to slide one more in, which is to Dan, and kind of given this context and law and justice's efforts to kind of take advantage of the incumbency um, why is the election or looking so close? Why why is this not a done deal? And what is it about the opposition this time around that has really enabled them and allowed them to stay in the race and make this close? What are they tapping into? Well, Who are they appealing to? Yeah, well, I, I guess what I would just add there is, um, even though I, I did sound uh, very gloomy in my initial assessment, and, and I am gloomy, yeah, it has to be said, Poland has a much more robust opposition than, for instance, what we found in Hungary, where we witnessed a similar backsliding process that then went even further than what's happened in Poland so far. And that was, uh, you know, partly, of course, due to the stratagems of the regime, but also to the weakness of the opposition. By contrast, in Poland, civil society is much more mobilized, uh, you know, behind the opposition. You've seen this march of you know, a million people or so uh, the other day in Warsaw. Of course, interestingly, the media, state media doesn't even report on that, right? But um, but yeah, there is a well-organized opposition. I think despite all the personal attacks on Tusk, the fact that you have a leader of the opposition of such stature that, you know, at the European level was, uh, you know, really a global leader, um, I think that's very helpful because he's very credible as an alternate, you know, and it's not like they're relying on some small town politicians or something to coalesce around. So I think that's some of this, the the key to uh, their having a fighting chance is uh, that public mobilization and having a strong leader. Michael, would you add anything there? Uh, yes, I think, you know, one, clearly there is a, after eight years, there is plenty of dissatisfaction with, with law and justice, uh, kind of with any government. There has been also quite a few um, um, scandals that are coming out, including most recently one about visas that have been sold uh, by some people in the in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This and, and it, it's a scandal that gets traction because on one hand it's about corruption, but on the other hand it is um, about government that is giving out more visas and selling some of them than um, to to uh, while being very anti-immigration, right? So you have corruption with hypocrisy, and that creates quite a quite a mix. But I think 
for quite a few people, especially on the opposition side, it does resonate uh, that the the theme of democracy and the need for change and for normalcy for Poland's place in the heart of the EU, all these themes are are playing and are sort of um, you know come together as a, together as a, as, a, as a vision of very different Poland than what law and justice is offering both you know over the last eight years and and in the future so it's really about you know a fork in the road for poland and i would just add one more thing maybe it's almost more of a question to michal than a comment but um as i don't follow the inside baseball of polish politics um as closely but it, it struck me that one huge issue facing Poland that I don't think has played so much in the campaign as one might think is the fact that due to the attacks on rule of law and violations of EU requirements concerning judicial independence, Poland currently has more than 100 billion euros in EU funding suspended. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the question, you know, one could imagine the opposition harnessing this and saying, well, look, uh, if law and justice wouldn't be attacking our own courts, there'd be 100 billion euros we could be using for our economic growth and development, etc. But, you know, from what I understand, the opposition is kind of avoiding that issue because they also don't want to be, you know, blamed for withholding money that could be going to regular Polish, uh, you know, to, to projects that would benefit regular Polish citizens. So it's interesting that such a huge issue doesn't seem to be a centerpiece, really. Or if I make a flippant comment, maybe they're learning a lesson that you can be like Viktor Orban and just hold up the most important issues like you aid for Ukraine and unlock <laughs> some of the money that you're owed. I don't know. But but Michael, you can answer more seriously. <laughs> yeah. Well, the strategy that you pointed out, Andra, it, it, it has not been working uh, in, a, in a way Brussels has not blinked uh, on, on this issue of recovery funds. Um, they have not been been playing an important role in the campaign, and for me, this is a little bit, uh, a little bit interesting, and 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 uh, not entirely clear why. Now, to be technical or detail about it, the the government did pass a law that would uh, agreed with the Brussels that would unlock these funds, but the president decided not to sign it. So one could say that it's not exactly the government. That is holding it um, up, but but there is a at the same time there is a very clear expectation, especially on the opposition side, that if there is a change in government and if it is uh, a opposition led government, that a quick deal with the president and with the commission can be reached to unlock this very serious money uh, that right now is sitting in Brussels on one hand, but is also actually being spent by the government as sort of on credit. So it's not hitting uh, people on the ground. Um, uh, but um, but yes, it's it has not been transferred to Poland. Jim, it's your turn. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, let me see if I remember what my question was. Um, so, you know, Poland is looked on um, as a staunch supporter of Ukraine, uh, more staunch than anyone else, because so much of of Polish defense depends on uh, what Ukraine is able to do to the Russian army. Um, yep. And so in Washington here, there was there was a lot of arched eyebrows uh, a few weeks ago when there was this 
scrabble, uh, so this this um, squabble that got a little nasty between uh, uh, Ukraine and Poland and some other countries in terms of grain. And Ukraine, uh, Poland came out and said, "Well, we're not going to give any more assistance to to Ukraine." Well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like it was uh, something that wasn't very credible. Uh, but um, but I, I when I was asked about this, I said, well, look, there's a Polish uh, elections coming up. I'm sure this plays into um, the, the government's uh, playing to its base and trying to prove some point or another about how tough they are. And even though it it uh, makes a mockery of their their view about Ukraine. And in a sense, in the West, we look like Poland has just shot itself in the foot. Um, it's all politics. It's just Poland overreacting. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, don't worry about it. There's nothing there. Was I wrong about that? Uh, was there really such bad blood there that they would say such a thing, number one? And number two, what will happen in terms of support for Ukraine as a result of this election one way or another? And I say that because uh, I, I just finished a round of meetings for the past couple of days. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of uh, depression out there about uh, whether it's from the United States or other places about support for Ukraine. Yeah. What are we seeing in Poland? I mean, if Poland begins to go wobbly on this for political reasons or ancient hatreds or personality problems or whatever it is, then we're in a hell of a fix. So tell me what happened and that squabble. Mm. Why did it happen? What does it really mean? And what's going to happen in terms of Polish-Ukrainian relations uh, and support after the elections? Well, thanks, Jim. This is, it's an excellent question. And, and we probably could have a whole podcast just on, on this because it's, it's, it's pretty complex and has uh, many layers. But let me, let me try to take a crack at it. And, you know, as you were as you were asking this question, I was shaking my head because I fully agree that this is an incredibly uh, unfortunate development at incredibly unfortunate time while Ukraine is fighting counteroffensive and uh, and Poland, the government is in fact shooting uh, ourselves in, you know, I would say in both feet. Um, I wish I could say that this is something that is just on the surface and will easily pass. I don't think so. Uh, it's we are um, at a moment of in the lowest moment of Polish Ukrainian relations since the war started. It started with the grain, uh, as you said, um, and and the grain issue of um, you to be to explain this a little bit, the sum of Ukrainian grain has that's supposed to be transferred stayed in Poland, depressed prices of of grain for Polish farmers. Polish farmers are obviously an important block of uh, voters, and therefore Poland closed uh, the door to to Ukrainian grain. and um, and then this issue has then been extended when uh, when U European Commission decided to open up uh, the, the 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 door to to the grain again. Uh, to the EU and Poland said no again to, to the grain. Okay, so that's the origin of it. Uh, but since then, we've seen an escalation, uh, escalation of words, escalation of um, emotions, uh, one that will not be so easy to put back uh, in the box. Uh, 
the government folks here in Warsaw would tell you that what President Zelensky during his UN speech when he criticized Poland, uh, that what he did was uh, very unfortunate given all the support that Poland provided. Uh, this played on top of this in the election because not only PIS has uh, voters that are skeptical of Ukraine, but of course, Confederacja, the far right party, has more of them, and law and justice, PIS, and Confederacja are competing. But all this is still escalating. Uh, Minister Rao, Polish foreign minister, just was, you know, uh, he skipped the trip to, to Kiev when almost all other uh, foreign ministers went. The, we, we got to a place that some uh, real interest on economic interest unlocked uh, emotions and also a fight of egos and uh, and leaders that have been very close, especially President Zelensky and President, President Duda, they really have a personal strong relationship, uh, fell apart for the moment. Um, a, many in Poland felt that uh, that Ukraine, uh, instead of working with Poland, went over Poland's head on this issue of grain to European Commission, perhaps Germany and others. So we we are in the moment of raw feelings, raw emotions in a campaign that makes it all a little bit harder. Now, October 16th will come, uh, but I, I think this genie would be a little bit would be hard to put back uh, in the in the in the bottle, uh, unless of course we have a change in the government where you can credibly make this 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 transition. On the other hand, if you if we have uh, a government made of uh, law and justice and confederacia, that government will have additional party that is actually more openly um, a, a Ukrainian skeptic. Now this will, and I should finish because this is again too long almost. This will not have, uh, this will not have, I repeat, impact on Poland's role as the main gateway to Ukraine uh, as a, a and a supporter of military aid to Ukraine. Right, over ninety, about ninety percent of military aid to Ukraine goes through Zeshov, the the town in southern Poland, but it will have impact already. Uh, I would say on political support uh, in Poland for Ukraine and Poland's credibility to argue for Ukraine in the in the broader uh you know broader community so uh, it's a it's a real scratch uh, uh unfortunately that now it will take a while to to patch up and interestingly it has very little to do with the difficult history which we also have but this time didn't come up fortunately but you know what's happened is, and Dan, I'll add to that too, but just to interject that uh, the New York Times wrote an article a couple of days ago connecting the dots about how support is slipping for Ukraine. And so um, they take what's happened in the, in the U.S., so all that mess on Capitol Hill. They look at um, uh, FICO, although I know that's not how you pronounce his name, uh, his, uh, his election in Slovakia. They look at Hungary and they look at Poland. And while a lot of these um, you know, squeaks and squawks that sound bad concerning Ukraine are kind of one-offs, uh, not necessarily directed at Ukraine, but just showing the, well, the AFD and, and Germany. 
But it's showing that uh, the, the New York Times made this case uh, by connecting those dots that there's a general trend of wobbliness in terms of supporting Ukraine. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to editorialize. That's not stopped me before. But I mean, I, I just think it's a, it's a pity that uh, this has happened because this feeds the MAGA people on Capitol Hill saying, look, why should we be you know, doing all these things when Europe isn't even behind Ukraine? Look at Poland. They're not even going to give them equipment anymore. But so it's been used uh, in a counterproductive way. And I hope they can patch it up. I know the toothpaste is out of the tube. Uh, and Poland is Poland, and and we'll just have to deal with uh, with the outcome. But it's just this this not not helping. But Dan, why don't you jump in? Yeah, I, I guess I I'm a little more optimistic uh, about the prospects for you know patching things up. I do think the the wild card that Mikhail mentions is if the outcome leads to a kind of coalition government or you know any situation where PS is dependent on Confederacia, then as as Mikhail says, yeah that could change the tenor of the government, you know, with respect to Ukraine. But otherwise, I think the grain thing was pretty much a short term electoral calculation because peace yeah, heavily relies on rural and agricultural voters. That's one of its key bases. And, and I think they've worked out a deal just in the past two days uh, where basically they're going to transit the grain through Poland, but do the inspections in Lithuania. As I understand it, you know, the idea is they want to stop any of the kind of flooding of the Polish market, but still let the grain get out to the global market and that should satisfy Ukraine. So I think the grain issue will be resolved. Um, and and I think in the bigger picture, you know, uh, you, even if you know pieces return to power, I think they'll they'll realize as they if they want to make any headway with the EU uh, in terms of you know getting their funding released, all that, or just um yeah, kind of uh, getting a softer hand from Brussels, their key sort of card to play is how uh, helpful they've been in uh, resettling Ukrainian refugees and being the leader and standing up to Russia. You know, that's kind of the mistake, by contrast, uh, that Orban's made in that whole calculus is that beyond democratic backsliding, which is one set of problems, he's also uh, you know, shown himself to be this big ally of Russia uh, in the context of Ukraine. And that has really uh, sort of uh, encouraged many states to sort of say enough is enough. Let's stand up to him. You know, Poland does, doesn't want that. And so I think if they're they're clever, they will kind of return to uh, their leading role uh, with respect to Ukraine. There's so many issues here that I want to pick up on. I want to come back to Confederatia. But Dan, this is just to push you a little bit on the grain issue being tied to the election. Um, is this an issue that will affect Warsaw's calculus on EU enlargement to include Ukraine? And just a couple of days ago, there was the Financial Times article that came out that said that Ukraine is entitled to $186 billion after a session. And a lot of the countries that are net recipients of EU funds will then be um, contributors. And so... How does this, how would this election potentially affect Poland's views on enlargement? I mean, they've been such a staunch supporter of bringing Ukraine into the EU. Um, is it, is this election have any impact on, on that position? And I, it, not the election and this kind of spat with Zelensky at the moment. Is it, does it have the potential to derail uh, Ukraine's EU membership? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and here I would separate something which I think is important. There are 
I think this election, first of all, is really ultimately about the survival of democracy in Poland. Because let's let's be clear, under PIS, according to all the ratings bodies, so whether you say Freedom House, Varieties of Democracy, Economist Intelligence Unit, Poland has been backsliding incredibly um you know quickly and severely on democracy over that past the past decade right uh, in fact poland uh, according to the vdem institute is the fastest democratic backslider in the world in the past decade okay so if peace gets back into power the biggest you know, import of that is they will consolidate a kind of hybrid or electoral autocratic regime. Now, so that that's, I think, what's at stake. When you talk about the issue of EU enlargement and agricultural subsidies and all that, to me, that's more of a national interest of Poland that would be true whether you have peace in power in a kind of quasi-autocratic regime or whether you have civic platform and a kind of um, you know democratic regime. Because even for the most democratic regime... <laughs> they still have to look out for the economic interests of Polish farmers, right? And for Polish subsidies. So um, what I would say there is that, yeah, um, for Poland, the prospect of Ukraine joining the EU, whoever's in charge of Poland is going to be very concerning because of the economic implications and the fact that, you know, they would uh, lose so much in terms of agricultural subsidies. And I think that's true regardless of who wins this election. I agree with with Dan that the calculation of national interest when it comes to the uh, EU enlargement of Ukraine will be definitely there, whoever is in power. Uh, and we have not fully started it yet as a country. Um, and what we'll, you know, what we'll see is that the national security, the strategic case will be pushing uh, Poland and Ukraine closer. The, uh, agricultural case is actually going to be very difficult because because Ukraine is uh, is agricultural powerhouse and uh, and will have to be very creative both when it comes to Poland when it comes to France and other ag producers and of course then there will be the big issue of of um, uh, of, of, of regional support uh, and and economic support where uh, just if you if we would. Uh, enlarge EU tomorrow, um, Poland would go from net uh, net recipient to net contributor uh, pretty much overnight. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, the, partly that's because of the economic success story that Poland has been, right? Uh, Poland has grown very well economically since, you know, joining the EU. And it's it has been a huge uh, beneficiary, uh, you know, net beneficiary of EU uh, funding, both through agricultural funds and other structural funds. But now, you know, its economy is, uh, you know, as its economy climbs, that's part of the the sort of normal success story cases. You go eventually from net beneficiary to net contributor. But yeah, as Mikhail says, Ukraine is something special because. Sort of when it's it's ironic in a sense, when Poland joined the EU, many of the agricultural countries looked at Poland that same way, saying, hey, Poland is a big ag producer. What's that going to do to our slice of the pie? And now it's the same thing, but to an even higher degree, given the size of um, uh, Ukraine. And, and this time around, Poland finds itself on the opposite side of the equation. Jim, that, that is just fascinating. But let me let me ask you something. I. Um, you know, just in terms of listeners uh, that 
that particularly heard the point that you made. I think Dan, I think you made it that about the backsliding, that the polls are the biggest backsliders globally in terms of democracy. And for us who who do foreign policy, international relations, European stuff, you know, this has been a story that we've long heard about Poland and the fight with the EU and the uh, and the ju- and the judges and fines and you know back and forth. That's old news. I mean, this has been going on for years. But um, but if you're if if you're a, a Brussels Sprouts listener and you're not an expert on it, I think it would strike you as confusing, if not alarming, hearing about uh, a NATO ally, an EU member, and all this backsliding in terms of democracy and trying to figure out, so what does that mean? Does that mean they're backsliding towards what, fascism? Or are they backsliding towards their old communists? I mean, I think there's probably confusion among a lot of people who are not experts, that when they hear about this, they don't necessarily know what that means. Um, You know, you mentioned the judiciary, of course, and that it's not going to be a, uh, it might be a free, but not a fair election, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talk, if you had to explain this to someone, uh, whether what is what about Polish backsliding? What does it really mean? How would you explain it uh, and 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 justify it to someone who's saying, "Gosh, I remember when they were in the Warsaw Pact, and then they came out and they became a NATO ally, and it was all great, and they were our great friend." How how has this happened? What does this mean? I know that could be a ten minute uh, speech, but um, like the question is, but uh, right. but. You explain that to someone who's who hears that for the first time and goes, "Holy cow! How does how did this happen?" Well, I I mean, really quickly, I don't think it's so different than what is happening in the United States. I mean, like there's an I mean, it, it these are processes that are playing out, whether it's Turkey, Hungary, U.S. So it's not so different. Um, that, but I'll, I'll let let you all speak. But it, you know, this idea that leaders are eroding institutions that presumably constrain their ability to do the things that they want to be able to do, um, and I think that's at the heart of it. But and and, it, and to me, it, it's a very top down process. It's you know there is still strong support in the United States and Poland and other places for democracy, mm-hmm. but you have leaders who are slowly dismantling these institutions because they don't want to be constrained. But over to you all. Yeah, I, I I agree very much with what Andrea is saying there. And I mean, to give a, a quick answer, uh, Jim, to your sort of hypothetical listener, you know, to put it simply, I'd say, first, when we think about autocratic regimes and, you know, what is like the likely outcome of this kind of backsliding, we have to get rid of the idea of brutal dictatorships. We're not saying that these regimes are going to become like the Stalinist Soviet Union or Pol Pot's Cambodia or anything like that, right? Uh, we're, so we're not talking about uh, brutal dictatorships. We're talking about the more mundane, uh, sort of softer version of uh, autocracy, where what you have is that uh, an, a leader gets elected in a democratic election, but as Andrea says, then they start thinking, well, I don't actually want to ever lose and have to relinquish power. How can I start rigging the system to uh, cement my grip on power for myself and my party for the long term. So I will tilt the playing field through a number of stratagems. You know, I'll capture the judiciary because they're the referees. I will take over the state media, make it a propaganda arm. I will use the power of the state, tax inspectors, licensing authorities, all those kind of things to then get control over more of the private media, uh, civil society organizations. And then once I do that, I'll, I'll allow the kind of 
you know, facade of elections, but they'll be so tilted that it's almost guaranteed I win. And then once I have that power, what do I do? Well, in some cases, um, it's mostly about corruption. So I'd say like the Hungarian case, uh, it's about basically stealing money uh, for uh, a kind of network of people around the ruler and the ruling party. And then in some cases, like Poland's, I think, although there is corruption, like this visa scandal, which is a huge thing, they were selling hundreds of thousands of visas and people were pocketing money, but but corruption hasn't been the main aim. I think the main aim for the Polish regime is ideological, right? They really are a far right, uh, you know, quite conservative religious party who will want to you know, put severe restrictions on you know, women's rights, um, you know, things to do with family policy, a choice, um, anti-LGBT policies, things like that. So they'll pursue their ideological agenda without individual rights protections, you know, through courts and things like that. My God, I want you to weigh in too, but to add one more thing, I think the polarization piece, this plays out so much in Poland. A lot of that politics, um, these leaders are also fanning polarization in a way that gets both sides to dislike the other to such a degree that you're willing to tolerate abuses of power if it means keeping the other side out. And I think that's in some that's why you see it's not that voters don't like democracy, but that if you dis if you just despise the other side so much, you're willing to compromise in order to keep the other guys out. And Michael, that's something that has struck me is just the rampant uptick in polarization in Polish politics. And so I don't know if you want to weigh it, you know, contribute a little along those lines as well. Uh, well, you are entirely right. Absolutely. We are a super polarized society in some ways, very similar in this way to the United States. There, there are a lot of similarities it's possible that we are a little bit further along than than you you are, but just about. Um, it also has to do to to very large extent that we live in separate uh, bubbles, informational bubbles, often geographical bubbles. Uh, people don't interact and dialogue on on issues, and they see each other as the other. So that's you know that's very very real um, here. But where I would, you know, you started under also by pointing out the to the issue of um, dismantling institutions, and that's something that is very real in Poland. And I would say that we are now on the on the verge, or or perhaps even a little bit beyond uh, something akin to state capture, where you where the party and the and the and the state, especially in this election. Are basically indistinguishable, where the um, where the apparatus of the state, the state-owned companies, um, is working for uh, election of one uh, party, not for the for the good of of the of, of the electoral process, and that's uh, and that's the flavor that we are seeing in other countries as well, but has been very. Uh, very real um, in in Poland, and this is what makes uh, this election so critical. Because if you close the system, if you make it really, if you if you complete this takeover of of the state, it will be very hard uh, to have um, any other normal election in the future. And that's what many people, especially on the opposition side, are worried about. 
you know what what Mikhail says it reminds me uh back to Jim's question you know for American listeners too maybe a useful comparison they remember their history classes learning about political machines you know in cities in the US historically imagine if that kind of thing happens at a national level where one you know the party and the the apparatus of the state becomes you know one in the same and it's like a it becomes a machine um, and that's happening, you know, at a national level in some places like in Poland. And that's what's at stake here. I want to one final question um, on stakes. So we talked about the stakes for the health of Polish democracy, but um, outside of Poland's borders, what are you most concerned about? Kind of what are you looking at? What are you tracking? Obviously, we don't know the outcome of the election Um but if peace wins and if Confederacia plays some sort of role in a coalition, if peace can't win outright, um, what are the implications that people should be attuned to? I'm happy to start. Um, I mean, here is we really we haven't talked as much about it. There are many scenarios of of governments coming out of this uh, and. Yeah, the one of law and justice and confederacy is the is, is a scary one, especially in the European context. Um, in the because uh, this this government would be more uh, eurosceptic, perhaps to the point of starting a campaign or conversation about pole exit. This is something that has been floated on the cover of a pro-governmental magazine just earlier uh, this week. Uh, even though you could. You know, I cannot imagine Poland joining the EU or this becoming a real issue. But but we really need to be looking at the other possibility as well. This this election is very much about Poland's place in the EU, in the in the democratic uh, alliance, and in that sense, there is a great opportunity uh, as well. Um, imagine that Paul. Imagine Poland that does find itself in the heart of the EU that actually does have good relations with France, with Germany. Uh, that's, that's, that gives a very different dynamic to the EU. Uh, I would argue also to NATO. Um, a, and, and, and it has a, a different impact also on the future of Ukraine through, through this. So it's, it's, you know, that is, that is definitely that side of, of the, of the uh, potential future that we haven't talked as much uh, this time around because we probably focused a little bit more on the on the threats and uh, rather than potential opportunities. Dan, final word is yours. Yeah, I would just say, um, yeah, I think for NATO, I don't think it's going to be so problematic, even if, uh, you know, peace or uh, you know, holds on to power just because I think they will maintain their strong stance vis-a-vis -vis Russia. But for the EU, uh, which isn't so focused on security and more focused on internal governance, I think it is deeply problematic because, frankly, I think like this idea of Poland leaving the EU, pole exit, it's a non-starter. They're not going to go that way. Really, the problem is they want to stay in the EU, infiltrate its institutions and sort of wield influence from within. And that's the real problem. You know, they already have key portfolios in different EU leadership positions, and they'll if they cement their hold on power, you know, they'll keep trying to do that. And that will be a, a threat to the EU from within. 
Wow. Okay. We, I think this conversation, there's so many things we didn't even touch on, um, that I had planned on, but this was really a fantastic conversation. And, um, I really thank you both for taking the time. Um, we covered a lot of ground, a lot of really important stuff. And I know we'll all be watching closely what happens uh, on the 15th. So thank you. And hopefully we'll do it again. And thanks Thanks very much. Thanks for me as well. Uh, the hypothetical listener in this case that I was mentioning is not hypothetical. It's my sister, Amanda. <laughs> <It's in> <laughs> Amanda, who lives in Colorado Springs and listens to Brussels sprouts. And uh, I think she would have called me and asked me about that. So a shout out to my sister, Amanda. And uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. Let's let's do it again after election, because this is an important one to watch. Thanks, guys. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.